Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our returning guest to today's episode is Brian Gimza. My good friend Brian Gimza holds a PhD and JD and is an Associate Professor of Humanities and Literature in the Honors College at Texas Tech University. In addition to his teaching and research, he serves as public scholar for the Soul Family Collection in Literature, Community, and the Natural World. Before coming to Texas Tech, he was director of the Southern Historical Collection at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Gems is author, editor of six academic books on American literary and cultural history, 10 book chapters, and more than 30 published articles and reviews. His books include The Literary History of Irish Catholic Writers and the Invention of the American South, which received the South Atlantic Modern Language Association Studies Award and features a lengthy chapter on McCarthy as well as his book, Images of Depression Era, Louisiana, the FSA photographs of Ben Sean, Russell Lee, and Marion Post Walcott. Recently, he's worked at Texas Tech Climate Center and is currently working on a book on STEM and McCarthy's world. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me back, uh, Scott. It's a great pleasure. We discussed a lot last time how you were turned on to McCarthy early on, as I recall, it was in graduate school. And so why don't we take a little bit of different focus and kind of maybe mention some of the other wheelhouses you've worked in initially and then lately and how those are, I think they all kind of connect up to McCarthy. So what are some of the other research focuses that, you know, both previously and then moving forward? Well, uh, thanks for asking about that. I would say that increasingly I think of myself as a humanist, uh, full stop. As we discussed, my early training, of course, in uh, law and uh, specifically environmental law and uh, American literature at the risk of being a jack of all trades and master of none. Mm. I do think that McCarthy, his work is a wonderful common denominator in my various interests. So uh, as, as you know, I've been involved in researching Hemingway's work in different ways. Right. I love teaching his stories um, and was a, a Hemingway fellow at a time. And there are a few writers like that that I continue to explore and, and teach. But McCarthy really runs through the, my work, especially since uh, he raises, for example, the concerns in the environment and in history uh, that continue to be a part of my work. I will say, as I have been more involved uh, in community-engaged scholarship in different ways, uh, as a, a humanist full stop, I have found that incredibly rewarding. So uh, it's quirky, but um, one one of the research, my recent research projects was rediscovering an apple, an heirloom apple variety. <laughs> that had been missing uh, in Texas for 100 years. And I guess that's maybe not your typical literature professor, but actually I think people who read McCarthy's work will appreciate this idea of there being a story in everything. Uh, there's a story in an apple, for goodness sakes, because it's only propagated one human to the next. Hmm. So there's a way in which you know even something as modest as an apple becomes a symbol of uh, a certain type of civilization. Of course, it's 
rich and symbolic meaning going back to the garden, although that fruit <laughs> wasn't necessarily an apple, but uh, we call it one. On and on, I, I have really been able to expand my interest because of Cormac McCarthy's work. So in writing about chirality, for example, this idea of the handedness of things, that came from a detail in Sutri. And I thought, you know, I never really thought like, why do vines wind a certain way? And, and is there, what's the pattern? And it took me almost a decade to write that article because I kept asking people uh, who were knowledgeable, okay, well, why is it that way? Ask an evolutionary biologist, why do uh, plants tend to be quote unquote right-handed uh, like so many other living things? And it took me into some really fascinating corners. So uh, today, as someone who's helping to preserve uh, and, and expand a really wonderful collection, the Sal family collection here at Texas Tech, there are roads that, again, lead back to McCarthy. For example, his friendship uh, with uh, Barry Lopez. And uh. he certainly knew some of the writers whose papers are preserved here. Uh, they shared friends and interests in common. Needless to say, Barry Lopez was uh, a resource for Cormac and his interest in wolves. But all that's to say that even though my academic path has been a little bit atypical, it's been wonderful to sort of travel uh, with this uh, amazing writer all the way um, in, in the various elements. Even now, as I have really turned a lot of my attention to what I see as the most uh, urgent question of our time, and that's the uh, issue of, of climate change and what we can do about it. When you said humanist full stop, I was also wondering if and I was trying to coin a word, and I don't think I got there, which is, say, someone who thinks that a I don't know, a life dedicated to the humanities and seeing how those things, how those art forms teach us things like empathy and critical thinking and nuanced discovery of ideas. And I was saying, so what would you call that person? Would it be a humanitiesist or a humanitarian or a, I might go humanitarian as well there. And and I would probably very close to humanitarian, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it, but it's not quite the same because you could be someone who loves the humanities, yeah. but you could be a selfish, probably humanitarianist or humanitarian. I can't get there, right? Humanitarian. <laughs> you could be a selfish one who doesn't really want to help other people. You just want to find out what a painter how they showed the plight of other people as opposed to necessarily being engaged with them. So, and I think. It might be interesting for us to back you up a little bit and say a lot of that early work, which shows up, of course, in your book, is also on Southern literature. And we did have you on before to talk about Southern literature and McCarthy and their intersections. And also, of course, the, uh, the kind of the, not the plight or perhaps the art of the Irish Catholic writer in American life and especially in the South. And I, I do think nationally, when we think of the Irish Catholics, we tend to localize them in Boston and New York and a few other locales, and I guess on over into Chicago. But we don't consider how many of them, for instance, settled in Texas, how many of them settled in parts of the, of the Southeast all around. And so I think that's one of the things that was interesting about that book and, and where you brought it. And of course, you tackled other significant writers in there, such as Flannery O'Connor, of course, being her own version of the Dixie Limited on the, the train tracks roaring through and 
a couple of earlier writers uh, as well as McCarthy. Yeah, well, one of the things I needed to do in the book was uh, address this idea that really was a later development that, yes, the Irish were in the South, but almost exclusively Scotch-Irish, as they're Ah. frequently called. And so it was fun to do that in a way by showing the the richness of a literary tradition to to make the point. But in my early discussions of the idea, some of them were with uh, Louis Rubin, who, of course, is remembered as one of the founders of uh, this Algonquin uh, of Press. Algonquin Press, exactly, and certainly a force for getting people interested in Southern literature. Right. And so in his inimitable way, you know, I said, Lewis, I'm thinking about, you know, writing about a kind of literary history of uh, Irish Catholics in the South. And he pulled himself up and he said, well, you can't write about that, Brian. He said, um, you know, there there aren't any Irish here. <laughs> now, he he was being completely sarcastic. This right. is what he'd heard his entire life when he wanted to talk about the Jewish presence exactly. uh, in the South. <clears throat> and so I was kind of heartened uh, and, and encouraged by him. He recognized early on that a lot of these dots uh, hadn't been connected. And so I set out to show how, well, for example, one of the first works, uh, one of the earliest books published was published in Winchester, uh, Virginia, was the tale uh, of an Irish immigrant. So we could go back to some of the earlier Southern literature and find uh, an Irish presence there. But more to the point, and this has been a long time coming, part of it is about helping people understand that the Irish themselves in the American South weren't terribly interested in any kind of uh, tidy secular distinctions early on. You know, you had people who were poor and dispossessed in many cases. Some of them came uh, under schemes of uh, indenture to uh, what became the the southern colonies. And in many cases, uh, they were too poor in one sense to even have uh, a certain kind of religious identity. It wasn't until later with Jackson, Andrew Jackson and others that you could sort of lionize the Scotch-Irish and say, hey, these are These are real Southerners. The Irish Catholics, which, as you said, are more commonly associated with other regions, they were were slower to be acknowledged in the same way. And some of them simply blended in uh, with their Scotch-Irish counterparts, uh, with some notable exceptions in some of the seaports and and in more isolated uh, communities. Obviously, I can't ask you to, in some way or another, reduce your whole book and its project to a just a few paragraphs. But uh, if you wanted to do that for us, we'd appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So one way to think about this is if I say to you, uh, uh, ever heard of the Uncle Remus stories? You know, have you heard of Gone with the Wind? And um, have you heard of this this remarkable writer named Flannery O'Connor, later Cormac McCarthy, who by the way, is a big fan of her work. You know, what do those people have in common? They all have, they all have done a lot to shape our imagination of the region in every imaginable way. And they all have, if not Irish, then certainly Catholic uh, connections as well. Mm. In the case of Joel Chandler Harris, who wrote the 
Uncle Remus stories. He was a late convert to uh, Catholicism. He's always described as childhood is complicated by being orphaned. There were rumors that he was the son of an Irishman. Mm. I just think it's really interesting uh, that these are the people who really just shaped an entire iconography uh, of, of the South, even if some part of that was imaginative. And it also helps us to understand some weird things. I mean, with any distance, you might say, well, why in the world was there an Irish Catholic <laughs> plantation patriarch in the middle of Gone with the Wind? Yeah. And the answer is because that was important to Margaret Mitchell uh, yeah. and her family history. So it's these, I argue, these insider outsiders who uh, often have uh, the most acute perception of the region and and really help to shape it in the popular imagination. And in some ways, um, Cormac McCarthy fits very neatly uh, into that uh, argument. So insider in that they're white people in the South or they're not at the very bottom or the very top of the social registry. They're kind of somewhere in, from between lower middle to upper middle, yet outsider because they're Irish descent and they're followers of a religious domination that is not that popular in the states they're in at that point in time. Right. Uh, although it may have been a lot more popular uh, than we realized. And and this is where we get into uh, nuances. But hmm. uh, you have to remember that in at least its colonial phase, uh, the southern part of the nation was seen as being the likely seat of Catholicism in America, right. you know, from Maryland to uh, Louisiana, so to speak. Um, so it's complicated. And it's also complicated by the fact that if you're living in a culture where you don't have a lot of co-religionists around, uh, it's very easy to blend into the population by saying, okay, fine, I'm, I'll just go to the local Protestant church or, right. or what have you. I think what's interesting is the way that some of these folks, not only you could use the phrase, uh, you know, that Noel Ignatius uh, popularized, not only did they sort of whiten in the eyes of Southern society, mm. but they also were whitewashed. And what I mean by that is you could take someone like uh, Roger Brooke Taney. Now, he has a place of historical infamy as the chief justice who wrote the Dred Scott opinion. Ah. But what people haven't looked at is that, in fact, he was playing the race card because he was an Irish Catholic who came to the Maryland tobacco colonies and then made his way into the highest echelons of society. And so I had done research, for example, in colonial newspapers, and I realized, actually, Tommy was not shy about being an Irish Catholic. Ah. And at that time, Catholicism in America was was going the way of America. It was it was very democratic. It, you know, a, a church <laughs> churches were influenced by local culture and people, um, and a barn a kind of barn raising mentality. And he was a part of that. But when I first tried to bring that to public attention in a in a history journal, uh, the reviewers were simply incredulous because his mainline biographers had described him as being, you know, more of an Anglo-American, uh. even though his surname, T-A-N-E-Y, Tawny, is as Irish as, as you can get. So it's interesting the way that 
some of these people have been treated by historians in a way without uh, being very cognizant of their their ethnic identity, essentially, which also happens to come with uh, often with a religious worldview as well. So when we think of McCarthy, then we always, of course, think of him as growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Peter Joseph reminded me, well, yeah, he moves to Tennessee, but he's from Rhode Island and there's other connections to him in Rhode Island. And I do think that's important. I do think, though, that the insider outsider is even that much more pronounced if he's not only is he a, again, you know, an outsider, he's a Yankee as a child and he's becoming Southernized, I guess, as he's being raised in Knoxville. He's also, again, as an Irish Catholic kid in a predominantly kind of Anglo-Protestant, Scots-Irish Protestant area of Knoxville, Tennessee. He's still that insider outsider. So what do we really know about McCarthy's upbringing from in terms of the Irish Catholic character of it or or his heritage where all that's concerned? Well, you're raising a a great point, Scott. I mean, imagine Rhode Island kids in that time and place. And not only that, but they lived essentially, quote unquote, in the country, the, the McCarthy family. Imagine, you know, some of these regional distinctions uh, may not be quite as important now, but there was a significant cultural gap there that the kids had to figure out to na- how to navigate. And I know this from conversations with the surviving McCarthy siblings. What I've come to realize is it actually reflects a really interesting split almost within the ways that, that the family navigated that. What I can tell huh. you is that from an Irish Catholic point of view, their upbringing was very <laughs> rigorously Irish Catholic and, <laughs> in a sense, quite conventional. Uh, you know, they were, there are elements of Irish Catholic culture that saturated their family, including uh, an interest in verse and music hmm. and storytelling. In terms of the sort of received religion, all the, all the kids were sent to the parochial schools, um, which then existed in uh, Knoxville. And I, this is going to come up repeatedly because I've, I've gained insights from talking to family members, and I want to be very careful not to violate their sense of privacy. But so I, I'm kind of checking myself, thinking, well, is this in the record or soon to be in the record? But uh, in the category of soon to be in the record, I think it's it's fair to say that the parochial education certainly had its ups and downs. Um, you know, in that time and place, obviously, Roman Catholic doctrine is going to be the delivery vehicle for the, right. the education in all of its facets. And I know from uh, talking to some of the siblings, that there were a lot of gaps there. Hmm. But then in the case of Cormac, you have a kid that's so naturally, he's so naturally curious, he's going to make sure he shores them up. And uh, uh, as uh, his brother said to me, like, you know, what in the world were they going to teach him at those schools? Right. <laughs> his imagination was already going in different places and uh, he was busy teaching himself. But you have to think about like how close it's like best of enemies situation. And it always has been in American culture, how exceedingly close the Irish Catholic are to their Scotch Irish counterparts 
in terms of uh, certain elements of culture and ritual and, and belief. And yet there's a somewhat artificial line that comes along with the quest to, to be more American. And so what I think young Cormac was hearing, of course, he wasn't Cormac then. That was a deliberate choice on his part to affirm. Charles Jr. That's right. Yeah, he wanted to affirm that Irish identity and he came to explore it uh, later in life. But what I would say is there's this fascinating sense that you've just moved to be with your cousins and there are a lot of things that are familiar about them and then there are things that are different. But I know that Cormac formed very close relationships with some some of the country newly inherited uh, country cousins in Knoxville, and he heard in their speechways, in their songs, he heard a lot that was familiar. And maybe it's easy for me to say because that's that was part of my upbringing as someone of Irish Catholic ancestry, not significant, but but still part of our family culture growing up in the South as a type of um, Catholic insider, outsider myself. Mm. I veered away from your question somewhat. There's a lot to be said about his upbringing from an Irish Catholic point of view. The rift that, or, or it's not a rift, it's just the way that the kids dealt with that identity. I think the sisters were very loyal to it um, and had no qualms about being lifelong Catholics who took the time and trouble to get to know more about Irish culture. Well, so did Cormac, so did Dennis, but they went in a different kind of spiritual direction Mm. in terms of the religious aspect, but it's always there. And of course, we have another brother who became a Jesuit, so uh, or, or was interested in becoming a Jesuit. So all of them had have quite a, a knowledge of Irish Catholic folkways, tradition, and all of them, I guess, now that I think about it, have, have uh, spent some significant amount of time in Ireland. Uh, it shows you, I think, how embedded in the family it was. And there are subtler things I could talk about, but that's probably a good way to conceive of it. I mean, the sisters were not impressed necessarily by it. So, Brian, I get confused on this. Remind me, how many brothers and sisters are there? You had three sisters and three brothers. Okay. So in that respect, uh, a sizable Irish Catholic family. And so by and large, you feel like most of them, other than Cormac and his younger brother, Dennis, were stayed pretty serious about the faith, but but not so much Cormac and his brother, brother Dennis. But when I used to teach, and, and still occasionally do teach occasional Philip Roth story to my students, we have a discussion about what I often refer to as the rather unique character, and I think that word unique is misplaced, but what I have called the unique character of Western Judaism and how it's both a a faith and an ethnicity, and you can be someone who doesn't believe in God but be Jewish, and you can be someone who has no ethnic connection to Judaism historically and convert and be Jewish, and that it's somewhat unique in terms of how we think of faith and ethnicity and those things. If if someone's raised a Southern Baptist and falls out of the church, we don't still call them Baptist. <laughs> we call them a Georgian or from California or wherever they're from. But I think I know what a lot of people who have put a lot of time and energy into studying Irish Catholics would say is that 
it doesn't matter how much you stay in your faith or not, that if you're born and raised through a uh, impressionable time in your life to be an Irish Catholic, there's some, there are going to be hallmarks and traces and lingering effects of that faith for the rest of your life. Would you say it's a fair assessment or? Oh, exactly. And as they say, you know, give me the child uh, for <laughs> a while and I'll, I'll show you the man. I mean, the, the, it's, it's very true that uh, as with Jewish identity, there is a, an ethnic layer, there is a, a religious layer. But even to your point, one of the things I've had a hard time getting people to understand is they say, well, you know, McCarthy has been clear that he's by no means Catholic, practicing Catholic. And the, the point that I would make is uh, when you were born Irish Catholic and born that way on both sides of his family, right? that stays with you. <laughs> and uh, he could very much be a Catholic in his, his worldview. And I've tried to make the case that he is. Other people say, well, he's far more searching and uh, ambivalent. But if you sound the, the deeper themes of his book, I think you see uh, of his books, what you see is a very uh, searching exploration of uh, what Catholic identity and faith and indeed a sort of Catholic worldview, often with sort of absolutist moral dimensions. What does that look like in the world? Mm -hmm. He's really sussing it out uh, for himself in, in various ways. So if we leave aside the road, which I think even the most, I don't know, dim of readers picks up, there's an awful lot of heavily Christian and Catholic symbolism throughout that novel. Leaving aside then the road, uh, where do you see um, his work so influenced by that upbringing? Where do you see it really showing up, you know, on a more specific case in his works? I think it helps. And, and this is what I've argued in various ways to understand what McCarthy found when he left Knoxville and, and headed mm. to the Southwest, because here's a world with many of the same familiar themes and, and behaviors, but it's more explicitly Catholic. And so, although not everyone reads the books these way, the, this the series this way, but the Border Trilogy, of course, is shot through with an exploration of, for example, Catholic practice in in mexico hmm. i mean look at the names for for goodness sakes like of course that's baked into the culture but he's also interested in kind of exploring those moral valences and those those novels and one way to conceive of that is going back to well, what was it like how how irish catholic was his household again i don't want to put on record anything that would sort of be private to the family but i know very well from discussions with family members that in some ways it was a classically Irish Catholic household and that a lot of the most important things were very hard for the family to talk about. Hmm. And they still have a very um, dedicated sense of privacy. And there's obviously, as in most families, you're going to find some pain behind that. So where I'm going with McCarthy coming to the Southwest is classically conceived Irish Catholicism influenced by the, the Jansenist breakaways, 
uh, highly uncomfortable with the body and with good reason, because mm. um, when it's a matter of survival for a family and when families know what the loss of children is like, that stays with you as well. So there's that deep strain in Irish Catholicism, which, of course, Flannery O'Connor took fierce exception to. She understood how damaging that could be. So you have that on the one hand, and then you have this more this more sort of uh, syncretic, very nearly polytheistic, but certainly polycultural hmm. Catholicism that is really quite comfortable with all kinds of things in certain aspects of, say, Mediterranean tradition. Sure. So this is like, to him, going to be just jet fuel for the imagination. Hmm. He's seen the different kind of elements of Irish experience in Knoxville. He's contrasting them with a version of Anglo-American culture, for example, that exalts the sort of wasp ethic, which suggests that if you're doing well in the worldly order and you're, you're blessed a certain way with success, well, that's a sign versus, uh, say, uh, a Mediterranean Catholic worldview, which has very limited interest in mm. the, the current life and keeping that in perfect order. <laughs> so all that's to say, I mean, even the migration of his life would have taken him into a, a, a deeply fascinating world that, that wouldn't be unlike, say, someone, a Jewish American, going back to explore uh, ancestral roots. And that was a journey that, by the way, McCarthy took seriously. I mean, he did, uh, as a young man, of course, travel to Ireland, uh, got to know a lot of people there. We get a lot of clues about what those experiences might have been like in uh, right. Wales and men. But of course, that's uh, unpublished. Of course, throughout Sutri, we see the references to his upbringing. So it surprised me when you went straight to the Border Trilogy, because as soon as you say it, I see it all through the Border Trilogy. But the first thing in my mind was we we're going to talk about Sutri and his clear inability to really feel at home in the church of his childhood and his weird use of kind of, I don't know, the strange caricature of a nun that comes to him in a fever dream and his kind of weird, bitter discussion with the priest and the last rites when he's, when he's sick and dying. Mm-hmm. Which, which is in itself is interesting that they decided for him last right. So they knew enough about where he stood that they are, are doing that. And all, all that to me is kind of fascinating in that book as well. So, well, yeah. And the reason I, I skipped right past it is because um, it, it's, it's the, it is so obvious in a way. I mean, mm. there he is dealing with the sisters and disillusionment with uh, his, his upbringing Again, without betraying confidences, I think that was uh, that was a big thing in the family culture. And if you know something about Irish Catholics of that gener- American generation, leaving the church or marrying someone outside the, the faith was was a bombshell. And so, mm. if you're paying attention, you're going to see him really grappling uh, with those those things. We also have an Irish Catholic tradition, the whole notion of, you know, sort of lace curtain Irish uh, and the various ways that Irish families try to improve their social status, uh, of which uh, McCarthy's father as chief counsel for the, the TVA uh, and a highly respected man about town right. is, a, is a prime example. And there's the culture of not 
bringing shame on your your family. So if you're slumming Sutri style uh, in the <laughs> underbelly of Knoxville, <laughs> uh, that's that's a, a certain kind of burden to carry. But you know, even there, there are also signs of uh, biography where, and and this comes up again in the road, the perfect day on the lake, remembering trips to Rhode Island. Yeah. There's a, a little split in uh, identity there. And if we go back even deeper, one of the things I surfaced uh, in uh, my book uh, was that, in fact, uh, there may have been a McCarthy, one of the first generation immigrants who was a stonemason, uh, which is pretty fascinating, especially yeah. since, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, his name may have been Cornelius. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but... To that point, Scott, I wanted to share something about, I, I'm speaking about largely in what I know to be true of Irish Catholic families through my, my own lived experience and travels and, and also research. But to, to make this a little more tangible, one of the things I write about in the book uh, is that there's the early draft of, of Blood Meridian, uh, where we, we can see it in the archives. It, it was actually a lot more Irish in its opening lines huh. than in the manuscript that we ultimately have. Uh, but one of the things, going back to Wordsworth, you know, my, my heart leaps up, the child is the father of the man. In those opening passages, I'll just read a, a line or two. Uh, it does begin, see the child, that Faulknerian and also Wordsworthian kind of way of, of saying it. And it right. says, he's pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He uh, stokes the scullery fire, fire. Outside lie dark turn fields with rags of snow and darker wood beyond that keep that yet keep wolves. That's pretty close to the opening yeah. lines, but it's these last lines that become important. It says, his folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water. But in truth, the father is a school teacher. No, we don't need one. We might could use a one-handed paper hanger, but we don't need no Irish school teacher. Ah. Well, that was in, in the edition, the, the final edition, all that's gone. It does mention the hewers of wood and drawers of water, which of is famously shorthand for right. uh, the the Irish going back to that those biblical notions, but that sense of grievance, which I think is another part of Irish Catholic identity, is really clear there. And I have had conversations with multiple siblings who quote that line as if somebody had said it to them yesterday. Mm. We don't need no Irish school teacher. So you have some of McCarthy's early American ancestors hmm. trying to make their way and, and running into the, the class caste racist system and a certain amount of right. nativism in their, their new country. Anyhow, I think that just goes to show in what is arguably his, his master work in the opening lines, there's uh, an Irish Catholic sensibility right in front of us. And some of it, he, he deliberately scrubbed out or, or uh, lightened up in the, the yeah. final version. But that's just an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Why, why does it matter? Well, 
it matters a lot in Irish Catholic families. In fact, sociologists have shown that long after many, and this is true in the South too, in places like Savannah and Charleston, long after Irish Americans have Americanized, uh, they hold tightly to that identity. Mm. And in some cases, a sense of loss, sense of, of grievance attends that. Mm. In thinking about it in Blood Meridian, it's even more interesting because I've always thought he calls the kid the kid, because although the story is set a generation before what we think of the tales of the Wild West, since it happens right on the heels of the War of Mexico and at the time of the uh, you know California Gold Rush and all that, if you move forward to a generation, we get the true story of Henry McCarty, or which is to say Billy the Kid. Under the other alias, William Bonney, uh, Dennis McCarthy, of course, has written a new novel, um, The Gospel According to Billy the Kid, that plays with some of that. And he doesn't quite so much probably talk about the Irish origins of Billy the Kid as he could have. And there are a couple of books about this, but I've always wondered about that connection as well. And especially McCarthy is clearly a derivation of McCarthy and the old McCart clan name, if we go far enough back in Irish history with Cormac McCart being the great, you know, Irish king that he's chosen his name from. Exactly, exactly. And an incredibly uh, rich history there. And the McCarthys, maybe uh, it's a case by numbers, but they certainly have been in influential in, in history in all sorts of ways. So, you know, it's interesting that he wasn't interested in being a junior. No. But if anything, he made himself more Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and more of a McCarthy even by, by going with that name. That's right. That's right. So we see it then all through his work. And to anyone who's interested in th this overall project, I highly recommend Brian's book. Was that LSU Press? Yes, it's called uh, Irish Catholic Writers and the Invention of the American South. Yeah, The chapter on Flannery O'Connor is really gold. And I think you really give people interest in things to think of with Mitchell as well. So we do see this showing up in McCarthy, and it's going to help us understand some of his work. It's not really where you're headed with your new studies in McCarthy. Can you tell us a little bit about your current project? Well, absolutely. But, you know, what's interesting is I guess it's it's still there, Scott, even though it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm writing about STEM uh, disciplines and McCarthy. And, of course, uh, the Santa Fe Institute is in the middle of that nexus. Uh, one of the things I'm writing about, for example, I do have a, a chapter that's more humanities-based where I look at the counselor and its relationship to metaphysical writers, including John Donne. Huh. So even there, um, <laughs> we're not going to get away from uh, McCarthy's understanding of theology and precisely the kind of metaphysical questions he raises throughout his work. You know, how does something have substance without movement, uh, and and those kinds of uh, ancient ancient debates, which also have a theological dimension. And in some ways, if we think about what's going on at, San, at the Santa Fe Institute, and we think about recent discoveries in physics, these are these are metaphysical questions that are being right. raised uh, as well. Uh, particularly when we think about the strangeness of quantum physics and other things. So once again, there's a weird persistent through line. Maybe it's just that 
here is the one writer with an imagination that's just so expansive mm. that his canon covers it. And he was so devoted to, to getting that stuff on paper. But, you know, we know some things about uh, The Passenger, which he's he's been working on for some time. What I tried to do in the book uh, is to say, look, he, he wasn't, it's not like he is a typical visiting writer. Um, he was actually right. helping people physicists with their ideas. He was helping edit yeah. their work. Uh, he really understood it. And so I think one thing that's useful is to try to understand this, um, what you might call scientific turn of mind in McCarthy, just through targeted case studies. I mean, I'm not, mm. I'm not able to um, claim the kind of expertise that it would require to wade into uh, complexity theory full stop. But I can, for example, show how uh, his writing about chirality in Sutri can be traced uh, all the way through other works, in, including mm. The Road. And somewhere in there, there's a scientific intuition about the under un underlying nature of reality and what is both complex and, and simple. It's interesting to think of him, uh, and I think this is just part of fascination with McCarthy because on, first we have the guy living in the, you know, broken down old motel for a few years. We have the stories from a previous period about how he refused to take a job at any of these various colleges offering him a writer in residence program for a year or two because it would interfere and they wouldn't have enough money to buy toothpaste, but they'd get a free sample in the mail and that would save everything. And you can just feel so much sympathy for his, the two women who were his wives in his younger days, Lee Holloman, with whom he had the child and the long marriage he had of Anne Delisle. You have a lot of sympathy for them because on the one hand, they, they probably supported his work and loved him because of his obsession with his art. And on the other hand, when it's time to put food on the table or pay the electric bill, you kind of want to have a little bit of scratch in the bank in order to do so. So you can see where they're coming from. So, it, But it's just part of building a legend. And I don't think McCarthy's ever cared about building a legend. I think he just does what he wants to do and people can move along or not. But it's just so apt and fitting that when he finally does find a place to kind of settle in as a ongoing house guest, it's a weird collection of high-end physics and with a few economists and bio, you know, biologists mixed in, um, and yet there's no, there aren't any other writers. There's no Breadloaf or Swanee Writers Conference stuff going on there. There's no, uh, like Faulkner going to University of Virginia and kind of pretending it's a bit of an old Virginia gentleman for a couple of years there, last two or three years of his life, where he's, you know, the the writer in residence and visiting writer at University of Virginia. There's none of that. He's he's hanging out and talking, you know, quantum string theory and why the math doesn't work with some physicists instead exactly. and, and telling them, don't use semicolons. Whatever you do, don't use semicolons. <laughs> that's that's right. Again, if we if we think about him in uh, in terms of an Irish Catholic family tradition, one other thing that's often been noted is um in its patriarchal dimensions, there's a lot that hangs on the man of the family, so to speak. And so yeah. the the fact that he wasn't putting bread on the table in the customary ways was another way in which I think he 
uh, rebelled against that culture of expectation. And so uh, his sisters, who are also accomplished, but in many ways lived more conventional lives, remind us that just how strange his, his path was, like you said. I mean, to truly get to a place where you don't care <laughs> on one yeah. level and that you're just going to follow the work uh, is remarkable. We know that from his own comments, if we take them at face value, that he understands that uh, writers and artists aren't always great com- company. They're, they're flaky. They may be stoners. They may just be, you know, uh, in, in a different headspace. We also know how energizing it is for him to be around people in the world of ideas uh, as pertains to, to math and science. And his interest, for example, in semiotics and, and the origins of language right. point in that direction. And again, it's a metaphysical question. You know, look at the reality of numbers. Look at the reality of God. Look at, I mean, it's in some ways, if you look at his, his interests, it was a, a very natural place to wind up because they were interested in talking about the same things uh, in a different language and even in a space beyond language. Whereas for him, the integrity of the work, that's his statement about it. It is what he wrote. Um, I know from talking to people, some of his uh, near and dear that, uh, and, you know, of course, this is a dangerous type of knowledge, but he isn't like other people. Uh, for one thing, he has an astonishing memory, uh, you know, and similarly, I think the same sort of circuits that are open in his writing would make him a very, uh, very adept in maths and, and sciences. So, you know, part of the danger that we run into as people who are interested in his work, on the one hand, there's this awareness of, you know, hey, there's there's a genius in operation here. But from genius, we also sometimes expect consistency. Hmm. And uh, I see him as someone who you know, truly has a searching mind. He's just going to keep following the questions. And so that that's another dimension of his work that I think is extremely important to honor. And also, we we need to be understanding that for whatever qualities of writerly and other genius he might have, he's a human being who's asking all the questions we all ask. uh, And he's not ever fully satisfied with the answers. His life is in writing has been a reflection of that. Right. Well, and you know that the project of the literary writer, as opposed to the writer who's an entertainer is not really always provide answers. It's just to ask questions. That's right. And, and a lot of the best writers and the best writing never exactly tell you what the answer to your questions are. They just say, here are some interesting questions to ask. And certainly his books, one of the things that makes them great, and the reason the best of them are so uh, incredibly rereadable, where you can come back to them over and over and over again, is you keep finding new questions and new ways to look at them and, and new understanding of them as well. Well, and it's so much fun to be around the guy who can walk into the room and instantly see those dimensions in, in a yeah. subject. And some of that is through his own education, but 
some of it really does point to those unique qualities of mind that open up subjects for the rest of us, like dropping a little detail about the vines in Knoxville that right. <laughs> led me to ask questions about the origination of the universe, you know, where if you follow that line of questioning long enough and like a child, you keep saying, why? Like, why are things more right-handed? Well, it has to do with, you know, uh, the following factors and the, the physics take you all the way back to the weak particle reaction and a sort of accident of the universe tipping a certain way in its creation. Yeah. McCarthy has always been the guy who asks, why? You know, we can't get beyond that, dude. Like, but <laughs> that is a good question. You know, is it like this for the whole universe? Is there moral order in there somewhere that is that runs with that? We don't know. <laughs> well, and of course, in once upon a time, they called people who were left-handed sinister. And that's, that's what the term originally meant was left-handed and yeah. uh, suspected the devil of having interrupted them. And speaking of someone who's almost completely ambidextrous, but does write with his left hand, I, I get very nervous when you ask this stuff, Brian, and I, I just want <laughs> you to stop it uh, while I still have some sense of an orderly universe. Uh, that's, left. that's a tribute to you, Scott. That shows <laughs> a great balance uh, uh, in your, your thinking. That's why you're, you're, it's wonderful to talk to you and, and <laughs> uh, talk McCarthy too. Last time you were on to, to move towards a closure, we always ask, I asked you about your favorite book. And as I recall, it was The Road. And you really gave a great discussion of that. So this time I'll ask you to differentiate. And if it's the same, maybe we can choose an alternate. What's your favorite book to teach? Or alternately, the favorite book to, as your first book, to have other people be exposed to McCarthy with? Yeah, I mean, as you know, of course, the the flip answer is whatever book I read last, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> it's like as a literature teacher, when people say, what's your favorite book? And you say all of them. <laughs> but but I will say that kind of pointing to what's next, I, I often teach a senior seminar in um, his work. So a lot of what I do next will come out of later works and the research that I've been doing for the, the STEM book. And so I'm going to throw a curveball in there. I guess technically it's a book. Uh, it's certainly a work. And I'm going to put The Counselor in the mix, um, which uh, so many people consider to be uh, untouchable. But I, my hope is the, the work that and, and research that I've been doing on that book goes to show that McCarthy, in a way, was, well, what do you call it? It's very nearly a hoax. Um, it's a, a very metaphysical book uh, or, or, or screenplay, I should say, uh, that is really testing us out and getting to the most sacred things of all and some of huh. his most essential questions. For example, a, a kind of binary. What kind of car would you have sex with if you could have sex with a car? <laughs> well, no? that's, exa that's exactly <laughs> it. That's a, that's a great, that's a distraction in, in my argument. Okay. Okay. Because either sex is something that is innately, we're going to natural, his interest in natural law, either it's innately sacrosanct, or if it's not, it, it's something that is potentially uh, monstrous and, and self-consuming. 
And some people detect in that um, a type of misogyny. What I'm seeing in it is, again, a really profound John Donne style uh, uh. metaphysical exploration of what we find to be sacred. And, and honestly, the fact that Malkina, you know, says, well, I, I thought about having sex with the cheetah and I okay. did with my sister. Like people didn't necessarily get up and walk out of the theater. They laughed right. uncomfortably at that. Well, if we go back to Renaissance tradition, if we go back to metaphysics, we need to say, what is McCarthy really at there? Yeah. And how do we participate in it uh, as an audience? And, and really pointing to, again, his extremely conservative, I would argue, Irish Catholic worldview, huh. where he himself has been a sort of disputant in uh, this argument, uh, and he's still working on it. Uh, and maybe in, in that book uh, or screenplay, acknowledging that there's a world of the sacred that is prelingual that is uh, known to us, again, naturally in the old world, in, in the old uh, word. And I know that's like a very unpopular thing to say in, in scholarly circles. Uh, and that's part of the problem. We should be talking a lot more uh, honestly about it instead of laughing uncomfortably when those uncomfortable moments happen in the theater of uh, Cormac McCarthy's imagination. <laughs> Well, Brian, we really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. It's been great, great having you on here. Good talking to you again. Thanks, thanks so much, Scott. And uh, I enjoyed the chance to to learn from your insights, and <laughs> it brings me more deeply into uh, these these wonderful books and all the dimensions that they open up for all of us. Well, thank you, and I appreciate it. And- Thanks again to today's guest, Brian Gimson. Dr. Gimson is Associate Professor of Humanities and Literature in the Honors College at Texas Tech University, where he also serves as public scholar for the Sal Family Collection in Literature, Community, and the Natural World. He is the author-editor of six academic books, including Irish Catholic Writers and the Invention of the American South, which contains a lengthy chapter on McCarthy. He is currently working on a book on STEM and McCarthy's world. Thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the theme music and interludes for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts, we hope they'll follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com social animals despite the darkening land of the world to come you can find us on twitter and facebook